My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Process Driven. When I was in high school, my junior year, I took my first photography class. And one of the things that we had to do before we got to shoot with the, the quote-unquote real cameras, in our case, Pentax K1000s loaded with Tri-X, was to build a pinhole camera from one of the round Quaker Oats boxes. And I remember thinking how incredible it was to see the simplicity of what photography is. Light and time, not even a lens in our case, just a strip of gaffer tape covering a tiny hole in some tin foil. But there we all were, toting our oatmeal boxes around, making pictures. Then we would go into the darkroom and print these little positive contact prints from the paper negatives. And I've got to tell you, it was alchemy. For us, the pinhole camera was just a stepping stone, though, to get to the SLR. Uh, in this episode, I'm talking to John Wilkening, a photographer in Philadelphia who uses pinhole as his preferred platform for communicating his creativity. For John, pinhole is the tool of choice for expressing his point of view. He calls his work the blurry middle between photography and painting, and his pictures are terrific. Here's my conversation with John Wilkening. Please listen carefully. Because I think your senses heighten up to sort of deal with the the excitement, nerves, mm -hmm. you know, all that. And I found that in those situations, I could get into a flow state a lot easier. When when you're a little off balance. Yeah. 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 It's it's sort of like the the notion of uh, like fighter jets, modern fighter jets today they without computers they can't fly because they purposely built them to be un unstable in the air right but that allows them to be so much better airplanes they just have the equipment to make all the in the tiny calculations to keep them flying right 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 and i i feel that with that's the same for a lot of creative life like you have to be dynamically balanced as opposed to statically balanced. <laughs> yeah. Dynamically balanced. All right. I, I hope I can get there. <laughs> I, I don't very often feel balanced at all, I'll be honest uh, with you. To, to be honest, I think the whole obsession with finding balance in our lives is, is pointless because I find the, the best parts of life are not balanced. I find the people that accomplish the most things aren't balanced. There's a level of obsession, a level of drive that pushes people beyond the sort of norm mm -hmm. to achieve things that weren't expected. When did you make this realization? Since I've been making photographs, um, for the eight years prior to, prior to pursuing photography, if you want to say, as my full-time profession mm -hmm. i was in, in those years in finance i was caged into a static sort of work environment and that i never really i never really got to push myself to the level that that push myself to the level that i could start learning 
about myself a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, it, it sounded like, I mean, you and I have talked about it before, but it sounded like the, the, the ways you were being pushed in, in that job, that existence, were ways that really didn't interest you. No, it didn't interest me, but I also think that those years were hugely valuable to me. How? I'm, I'm not a very detail-oriented person by nature, and, but uh, yet I became a trader, for, and, and not the standard guy on the Wall Street, uh, Wall Street floor that you see, but I was, my job was basically to follow instructions and that the only reason a robot couldn't do the job is there'd be outlier situations that a computer couldn't see mm-hmm. and you needed a human to do it. But it was very much a something, uh, a job that required precision process. Like it was very much a do the exact same thing every day with a hundred percent accuracy as possible. Hmm. Or else there's dollars associated with every screw up. Directly associated. Oh, directly associated. Yeah. And like every error, once it's corrected, it was like, here's here's the damage. And there's a line directly pointing back to you. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so I initially struggled the first like three months because it's very much not my personality. And I mean, you you see it sort of in the messiness of my own work, but controlled uh, chaos. Yeah. Controlled (laughs) chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, my work is, is, is less of a sniper shot and more of a shotgun spread. Right. Right. You know, it's like, you know, but in this job for me to stay employed, I had to basically learn how to be precise and basically master something that was a struggle and i i learned so much about routine and processing processes and building processes that allow that basically over overwrote my sort of base instinct Mm -hmm. and sort of and so the longer that you were there did did the did you get further sort of disconnected from yourself the longer you were doing this sort of precision work that, that, that kind of ran in the, in the face of, of how you were normally or how you were away from the job? I'm not sure if the preciseness itself was the problem. Um, the, the way I've sort of come to terms with those years is I borrow a, a statement from Brene Brown where she said she said unused creativity is not benign. Hmm. And I think I think that statement sums up that period of my life. Yes, that be doing such precise work on a day-to-day ba- basis probably took its toll, but doing the exact same thing every day, 5 days a week, every year probably took a far greater toll. Mm-hmm. You know, I like taking chances. I like I like following ideas down, you know, pushing them probably beyond where people are comfortable. If I get too bored or too comfortable, it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And 
And so well, is there a distinction between the two of those things for you, boredom and comfort? Or do they um, do they mean the same thing? I think they're two different things. Mm-hmm. Because boredom for me is like an intellectual like it there's it's a situation that doesn't i i'm not prompted to ask further questions and further to explore something further where comfort is 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 more of a a byproduct of of experience and familiarity okay so if i thought hard enough i could probably sit think of a scenario where you're bored but uncomfortable Mm-hmm. and also comfortable but interest like i don't think they cover exactly the same scenario and i would put boredom as way more deadly than being comfortable does one necessarily lead to the other for you if i'm in, if i'm intellectually bored i think a lot of things start going south for me that's sort of a general broad statement mm-hmm a good friend of mine just described it as I'm either productive or destructive. Hmm. You know, said that about you? Uh, yes, as well as himself. Yeah. We're we're very much the same people type people, but if the situation is a little too static, we'll interject a little chaos into the situation to, Mm -hmm. to sort of, I don't know, liven up the party would be. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so what, a, did, what did finance become? Did finance become comfortable or did it become bored that ultimately led to the change? Part of my journey into finance was I viewed the stock market and sort of finance as one of the biggest games in the world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a part of that game. Now, I, unbeknownst to myself before I started that journey, I handicapped myself because I didn't go to a college that fed into these programs. Hmm. So were you, so, were you set up to fail from the beginning because of that? Or, or not necessarily to fail, but not to succeed? The choices, the choices I had made for various reasons more or less created a scenario where it'd be close to impossible of reaching that goal. Hmm. And how far, how far into that did you make that realization? How far into that, that career? I basically had got into entry-level sort of customer service at ING Direct and worked my all the way up into the trading department. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through a combination of the, the bond market blown apart in 2007 prior to the big 2008 crash. Right. And my own sort of arrogant just out of college attitude i got let go and so i was basically let go from that job after sort of tasting a little bit of that success but into an environment where it was close to no financial firm was hiring traders Mm -hmm. especially one with barely any experience and so i basically took that same formula and tried to replicate it and I succeeded, but then I was in a scenario where far as I reached sort of like, I guess, six years down that path, that's when the sort of lack of creativity began to take its toll. Mm-hmm. So it, it became something where it was self-evident. It became self-evident to myself that 
that I had to find a way out. And then it was more of a question of trying to figure out like how I was going to, how I was going to do it. And how did you settle on the path that you took? Was it, was it, were you, did it appear? Was it, was it planned out? Was it happenstance? What, what happened? So uh, I had, so I reached a point where the unhappiness in my, in sort of my nine to five, well, I wish it was nine to five, but out <laughs> Monday through Friday job. Right, right. I was trying to offset that by pursuing creative projects during the weekend. So I looked specifically at, photographic projects. It, yes, yeah. but also I was slowly teaching myself how to draw. Mm -hmm. I did woodworking. Um, I basically explored different elements creatively that were very much the opposite of my Monday to Friday existence. And I had taken photography in college and, you know, went as far as doing an independent study in that I was a lab assistant in the dark room and I had, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it, for some reason, just set it aside once I, you know, graduated college. And so it was during that stretch, I picked up the camera again and started photographing what was it about it that spoke to you over woodworking drawing painting the other things that you were that you were exploring what was it about photography that that satiated that creativity that those other things didn't it came easier to me and that mm. seems that seems a little little odd but a way to put it the answer doesn't feel heavy enough for the pursuit of photography. You know, like I feel I should have a better answer to it, but I've always been very visual. Mm -hmm. I've always been the person who's like, oh, did you see what that person's wearing in the crowd? Like I seem to notice things at a far, di far differently than other people do. And so there's something about photography that tapped into that ability that it it just flowed a lot easier where drawing to this day feels like i'm banging my head against a wall and, and i sh should explore it more but it, it it doesn't come natural to me right right, right. <laughs> you know and then it doesn't that, sound like the payoff would be worth what it would take to get there correct correct yeah, yeah. And this, and same with woodworking. I I love the smell of a wood shop, and I love like that experience of physically holding a piece of wood and sort of manifesting a physical object. Mm -hmm. But once going back to this, my lack of preciseness. You know, it's it's sort of bad if you make a table that wobbles, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a right. that's a feature you buy from an antique store. That's not something <laughs> that's not something you get brand new. Right, right. So it seemed to just flow and sort of it was it felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. Familiar and, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so it's something that I just it like sort of latched onto and sort of was like, okay, this is the thing. Had finance had finance taken a, a complete backseat at that point? 
I had got myself in the cor- into this weird corner where I was in such a bad mental state from the job. Um, I was averaging probably about 60 to 70 hours a week at the finance job. Mm-hmm. Coming home, compl- like I was that classic case of burnt out. Mm-hmm. And so I was obsessed about quitting to the point where w- we figured out a way basically a a path and I quit to pursue it full time. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't spend a lot of time as if you want to say an amateur, not trying to earn a living through photography. I very quickly was like, okay, how do I make money at this? Right. Right. And so I I know I love this. How do I, how do I monetize it? Correct. And some of that attitude is helped by the fact that as much as people told me how difficult it was, I looked at the market and saw people were living off, making a living off photography. So it wasn't impossible. So it was a question of how can I, like, so it's, there is a path. It just becomes a question of following that path. Mm-hmm. And which, which path do you follow? Cause you, you took yeah. a very different path than, than, the majority of people who are professional photographers and, and I'm using my air quotes around professional. Oh, sure. Um, are you in terms of the pinhole work yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. So the pinhole photography was, was sort of a, it, it was a solution to this problem. And what I mean by that is if, so I quit in say October and from october through i guess uh february yeah february i pursued what would be fairly normal typical photography that you'd find out sort of on instagram all the flicker all the major websites you know, long exposure, macro ph- flower photography, landscape, street, ph- all of it. Mm-hmm. And it was all on my website and none of it was selling. And I sort of, I sort of looked at it and I was like, I'm a lot older than a lot of probably photographers starting out. And I have a family. I can't play the game of trying to incrementally be better. Mm-hmm. I you, have you didn't make, have that you didn't have that sort of ramp up luxury no i couldn't spend the time to be in the top you know x number of street photographers to get paid for street photography that may mm-hmm. be a bad example because it's pretty hard to get paid for street right photography. <laughs> like, well, what, who's getting paid know? for street photography yeah but <laughs> yeah you know so so i had i i looked at it go oh, I have to play a completely different game. And concurrent to that, um, I one of my favorite photographers and sort of like, never talked to him, but one of my sort of, if you want to say, huge inspiration is Ian Ruther. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that built the giant wet plate camera. Sure, truck. sure. Uh, what was the name of his, the, the movie? that re- Silver and Light? Isn't that Silver what it was? Silver and Light. Silver and Light, yeah. I became obsessed with that that film that because he, he just talked about things that i was sort of dealing with because all during this period i'm shooting digital mm-hmm. and it didn't fit sort of with 
who I was and sort of my personality. And so uh, he was talking about sort of going to exploring these other, op, you know, things. And, mm -hmm. and he then posted a, a video of how he turned a Holga into a wet plate camera. Right. I remember and, seeing that. And since I didn't have the cash to buy a food truck and shoot <laughs> giant wet plate cameras. At, at $500 a click. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, here's a, here's a $24 option that I could start. I could afford that. Mm -hmm. So, but then fate would have it. In Amazon, one click buy, I bought a Holga pinhole camera instead. And after a couple of weeks of just being mad at myself, I finally was like, well, I have this camera. I might as well shoot it. So you had you not even shot with it? In, in, no. In, oh, okay. So I just began playing around with it. And I was like, oh, maybe I could make a project of me trying to learn how to shoot with this camera. And, start. and so I'm at this point where I was like, I can't play the same game as every photographer. And I have this project where I'm learning how to shoot with this pinhole camera. And, I'm, and there are elements that are really capturing my attention. And so I sort of, I was like... Hold on. Creative elements, process elements, both? Both. Because yeah, okay. there, it had a way of looking at the world that was completely different. Mm -hmm. I guess one of my big things is when I, when I see an image or a created image, I don't want it to be easily consumed. And by that, I mean, I don't want, I, I don't want you to look at something and go, Oh, that's a car or that's a mountain. And that's just me personally. I want there to be questions between the viewer and the image and here was a camera that sort of gave me a shortcut to that because it just presented the world in a completely different way. And then on top of it, it tapped into the sort of the physical nature of, of shooting film again. Mm -hmm. I'd shot film back in college, but here was a chance like that all of it's that whole process just, it makes me happy. Like the, everything from the weird chemical spells to to you know feeding film onto the reel and right. all of it you know were you just from a process standpoint cuz cuz you and I have walked around shooting together and one of the things that I find fascinating about your work is you don't look through the viewfinder ever no there there is there is this there is this way that you take the photograph while at the same time experiencing the photograph yeah, without, so, without being confined to a viewfinder. Yeah. Part of that is at this, at the moment where we're walking around, I've probably shot close to a hundred rolls of film through that camera. Mm -hmm. And I roughly know what that camera works out to be about a focal length of about 23 millimeters. And I roughly know what that angle of view is. Visually, just uh, as you're visual, looking out into the world. Uh, visually, based off on where I'm holding the camera, mm -hmm. what that translates to the image. Mm -hmm. And so uh, since I know that already, 
and I'm taking image, taking pictures of very dynamic scenes of people moving around. The, if you want to say the cost of taking the camera to my eye in a more traditional, I'm taking a picture stance is almost unnecessary for me and a wasted waste of effort. Mm-hmm. And especially because if I catch a little bit of the, of something else, like there's a beautiful chaos or a happy mistake element that's sort of baked into my work already. Yeah. It's a, I would that, say it's an integral component of your work. It has to be yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. So why should I be bound by not getting everything I perfectly want into the frame? Mm-hmm. It, it feels like I'm almost fighting against the natural instinct of the way I shoot. So I quickly got rid of using the viewfinder. And right. so it just allows me to move in and out of a crowd a lot quicker and easier without getting people's attention. And and what was the aha moment where where you're shooting with by all accounts and and again you and I have talked about this several times you're you know you are you are sort of running completely contrary to where photography is going as an industry you know we we are per pixel sharpness more megapixels bigger lenses better coatings on lenses and you go hmm, no i think i'm going to go in the other direction so what was yeah. the aha moment where you realized it was working so it it became one of those things where I just intuitively followed where my curiosity was taking me. And so if the images you see in my work now are very different than the images that you saw when I originally shot with a pinhole camera. Mm-hmm. And it basically became one of those things. It was a journey of going through using it very similar to a camera shooting long exposures the aperture on that camera is f192 so your instinct is oh, i'll just shoot it like a long exposure since every image every shot is a long exposure so you start down that rabbit hole and you sort of it's almost like i explore that level of my knowledge to the point where I I know what it's like, what the, all that is, and then I find a little little path, and I follow it deeper and deeper, and it became one of those things where I was I was shooting these what would be considered more long exposures down in the city to capture the blur. What I initially thought was to shoot and capture the blur of traffic with people, and then it became oh, I'm going to capture the blur of people on the standing on these corner street corners. And then it became, how can I maximize this blur? And then just while I was sort of like trying to wrestle with that, um, I, I got exposed to uh, two things. David Dushman's sort of long exposure work. Mm-hmm where it's the slow shutter work where right. it's very right. blurry that. And then Ernst Haas's motion work, mm-hmm. which is very blurry. Mm-hmm. And that became the permission to sort of really push the sort of blur and impressionistic features to it. Interesting. 
So did, did you not feel that it was valid as a, as a means of expression before finding David and Ernst? Well, how, well, I'm, I'm curious why those two, why did that give you permission? And why did you need permission? It's the equivalent of saying, oh, someone else has played in the same territory. It's safe to go out there. Hmm. The thing with the pinhole photography, at least from my perspective, and this may just be a lack of knowledge on my part, is that I don't have anybody to really follow follow their path. Sure. Yeah, there's there's the, definitely not a roadmap that you can that you can kind of go, okay, I just need to do this, this, and this. Yeah. So like if you're if you're say you're shooting portraits, the canon of photography is filled with amazing portrait photographers. Sure. Sure that you could sort of mix. I don't know of any major pinhole photographer. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I feel like I'm exploring and put exploring territory that I'm not really sure has been explored before. And so to, to the question on the sort of the blur element to it, so much of photography is your sharpness and all this thing and it, you sort of you're so conditioned to be this is photography is this and the, those two pieces were it sort of pointed to this as I refer to it as this blurry middle between photography and painting mm -hmm that my work now occupies you know we're i'm my work is very different than both those those guys but it's they were they were the it was sort of like the the first real sign that i could use or map that i could use and apply to pinhole photography mm -hmm. after sort of being out in the wilderness all by right, myself right. it was like oh oh this is out there i could do this did, did either the quality of the work or or the tone or process of the work change as a direct result of learning about those two photographers or or did it merely give you permission to keep pushing forward on whatever path you happened to have been on at the time up to up to that finding that work all my pinhole photography had been sort of on a tripod mm -hmm. and because of it the, it's always you're taking minimum the exposure is about a second and so after that is well if if i'm not worried about the blur if I'm not worried about the sh you know camera shake and all that, why do I need a tripod? And hmm. that was that became the freeing sort of thing that opened up all the work you see right now for me. Mm -hmm. Because then now now I'm not limited to setting up a tripod in a crowd. I can literally move and flow through a crowd. I become almost like those street photographers who you don't notice take the image. Sure. And and then it became it became another element within the within the image. You know, not only do you have the element of 
people moving in the scene in front of you, but you have the element of how still I held the camera for that frame. Right. And I could literally change the effect on the image by how I shot the image. So despite the fact that it, 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 it can appear to the contrary, there is a massive amount of technique required to do what you do. Yes. It's there. I mean, you really, you really are building this sort of muscle memory and, and, you know, thinking about how you hold the camera, how you position it against your body, how you're standing, uh, what things, verticals, horizontals, diagonals, what are going to work compositionally. There really is quite a bit of technique because you're fighting against time and blur. Yeah, it, and it's it becomes one of those... It, every image sort of builds a library and builds sort of a, a catalog of things, you know, that, that I could reference and pull from to create more images. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I taught myself how to process color film. I really worked on pushing film, which allowed me to get the exposure down to a second, which, enhances the blur mm -hmm. i've learned there is a roll of film where i actually stood too still and it's not blurry enough wow and so it doesn't it almost looks unintentionally blurry yeah yeah it, yeah it, you need you need it crazy enough that it just looks like it's not sharp and that lukewarmness mm -hmm. that is is not appealing but when it's more to the blurry side, you're like, oh, I think that's a person and there's their feet. And, oh, I, I get that. And that's a you start putting the pieces together and you create this story of what that image is. Mm -hmm. And it gets people to interact with the image longer than, oh, that's two people standing on the sidewalk. Right, right. There's an exploration that has to happen. It's necessary to understand or appreciate what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I could explain to someone how I take pictures very quickly. And, you know, you cameras available on Amazon for 24, I think 24, 30 bucks, something like that. And it's very simple. Like process wise, I don't do a lot, but it becomes one of those things where I put so many rolls of film through that camera you could see someone's sh shirt in the crowd and know that that will make a great image. It becomes mm. like, it becomes almost like I'm adding ingredients right. to stuff to where you go. Okay. I got that, that element in the background to contrast against this element right, in the right. foreground. Well, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier to a casual user. Uh, this is by chance, but there really is quite a bit of, of, consideration and and thought and you're making a lot of choices along the way to make these photographs work so i did a look there's a local arts festival in our uh in our town here in philadelphia every year and i had the i had a booth with prints for sale and uh there was a couple of people during the day were like how how come you 
you're charging for your blurry pictures and I delete mine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and what was your answer? Did you have an answer? Yeah, I did it on purpose. Nice. You know, (laughs) and they sort of shrugged their shoulders and sort of went on their way, but you know, you know, (laughs) but, but there's just as much refinement. There's just as much style. There's just as much technique. I would knowing knowing you the way I do and having talked to you about this that you put into this that you did into your DSLR work. Oh, yeah. Maybe even more so. I would agree um cuz since since I sort of made the connection that it's that it's very it's as much as close to painting as it is photography. I've I've become to study the or the work of the impressionists and sort of understand their how they did what they did and sort of try to take lessons and imply it into my own work and sort of look for them for much as much inspiration as other photographers Mm -hmm. do you find yourself being more inspired by painting with with this technique than you did with photography i i tend to i yeah I find that there I could I could relate in some ways to that those works a lot easier than I can sort of most photographer. I don't know exactly why I appreciate a lot of photography and it's uh, I definitely I understand it better, I respond to it better, but it's something that maybe because I'm working I'm playing in this current sandbox of mine this blurry sandbox that it's more relevant to my current work mm-hmm. and so i'm more looking to that you know i could i could appreciate amazing portrait work but those elements i can't exactly apply to my work at least yet right but i can look at a van gogh and tried to piece together his composition and sort of use of colors and maybe and you maybe take something why do those work as great pieces of art and maybe this last roll of film that didn't work can i apply can i quote unquote fix Mm -hmm. that past you know past images and try to figure out why that those resonated so well with people and do you do you do sort of postmortems every roll when you when you process and print? Do you go through everything and go, well, okay, why does this work? Why doesn't it work? Or or is it more of an organic evolution or an organic um, exploration? No, I very much go through. If you want to say the contact sheets, mm-hmm. um, I scan everything digitally. Um, and then look at the sort of folder and sort of like piece together and like and try to try to input figure out what what i liked about certain images what i don't like about certain images and the lessons i could apply from that because shooting all film all the feedback is you know delayed into improve i need that feedback to make a and push push my work forward so i make a conscious effort to constantly look at my work 
print my work, look at it from the objective eye of what could I fix or what could I improve that allows people to, to, to feel the image a little more like, Mm -hmm. are there any, yeah, connect. Yeah. Yeah. That's a better word for it, but like connect to the image. Are there pieces of the elements of the image that, that break up that connection? Well, it's, it's interesting because there, I mean, I, I look at pretty much everything that, that you put up and there are definitely some images that work. I hesitate to say better, but they work on different levels for me than others. And it's, it's fascinating because you're applying very similar processes. You're, you're applying very similar techniques, but the, the way you happen to catch a subject or the way tones play off of one another or the way the light reacts, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's consistent, but there's also that element of chance, the happy accidents that, that we've talked about before that allow me to connect differently with different pieces. I completely agree. And part of sort of, going back to the first part of this conversation about about my sort of problems with being bored that happy accident element of it the fact that so much of this work like i know when i come home from like a shooting going down in the city and shooting a lot there isn't like a frame that i'm like oh i know that's a good one mm-hmm I literally look at it from, I wonder what I got. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just, there's so many elements that, that are at play that I never am sure what I have until I scan it into the computer. Has that aspect of it become fuel in and of itself? That, that oh. aspect of not knowing? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It, it becomes, it becomes that. It's one of the, it's a very addictive quality that delayed, that delayed gratification, that sort of mystery. I feel I'm almost like unwrapping the rolls of film on photographic Christmas, you know, like, you know, that, <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I put this time and physical energy and physical work into something and, and dollars because it was film each role is five dollars and throw on developing like there's all these aspects to it mm-hmm. yeah it's no longer that, just an energy uh, just an ex- an expenditure of creative energy there's an actual physical component that you have yeah. to consider all the all that sort of is it becomes baked into this moment where i pulled the film out of the tank and even after shooting so many rolls of film, my first check is to make sure I have images on the, mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Is like, it clear? Yeah. Like, <laughs> please don't be clear. Please don't be clear. Please yeah. don't be clear. Uh, I was, if you want to say I was going so well up to the last batch of rolls of film, like I was every role I was getting, you know, developed nicely, like all this stuff. And then I tried pushing film a color film a little too far and out of like nine rolls of film i probably got a you know two rolls three rolls of images ouch 
in it, yeah, and you're like, ah, you know, like that one, you know, but that that's the fuel that that keep, you know. Sure, you've got to figure out why and and yeah. and sort of course correct. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. If I wanted to see a perfectly exposed images every time, I would have stuck with digital. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not one of those to get in the which side's better or worse. But for me, there there is a there is a lack of control in her that that just allows me to tap into tap into the work and sort of I get more enjoyment out of out of knowing that I managed to get an exposure right when I had the possibility of getting that clear roll of film. Mm-hmm. You know, that and there's such a well-designed safety net with digital photography that it, you know, it, it just, it didn't, it didn't do it for me. You know, I still, I still play around with it. I still have my Canon 5D and I, I still, you know, I still bring it out every once in a while to do more like double exposure and triple exposure stuff that I've been playing around with. But yeah, that's a, it's this chaotic mess of a beautiful mess of a pinhole work. That's, that's, (laughs) you know, right. (laughs) Is, is my playground right now. I I find it fascinating that, that even if you do bring out your 5d, that you're still actively sort of refusing to use it the way it was designed to be used or the way that most people are using it, that you're still pushing to multiple exposures and playing with, with, you know, in-camera blend modes and things like that. That's, that's fascinating to me as well. I'm one of the, like, I'm one of those people that if you give me a tool or something, I will try to push it probably beyond what the safety warning tells me to, to, to use it, you know? And it, there there to me there's something so fun about achieving something that you weren't supposed to do mm-hmm. with a with a piece of equipment mm-hmm. or or you do something and people are like whoa you built that or you did that like i i never even would have thought to do it much less actually attempted to do it and got it to work like it's sort of the drug and the part that sort of it it fuels me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I will I'll probably always try to push, you know, push that that tools to the point where you know the wheels come off. <laughs> right, <laughs> the wheels come off, and I end up with a blank image. It's like, ah. <laughs> well, now what do we do? Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, okay, that's that's the line right there. That's- but it's it's terrific because it's going back to, you know, you're going back a hundred years. You're sort of you're sort of disregarding the past hundred and fifty years of photographic history in some ways, and and sort of relearning it all at your own pace, and trying to figure out what happens with light, what happens with color, what happens with time. And what happens when light, time, 
and color all come together perfectly, or at least perfectly for what you're trying to achieve. The sort of the the reason I got into these creative pursuits was the fact that I could I could explore a medium without the limits of someone telling me what I can and cannot do. You know, the I came from a world where, you know, had a clock in at a certain time, had to eat lunch at a certain time. These were this is what is supposed expected of you every day. And so I'm now I'm basically given a I use the term playground a lot or sandbox a lot because I that's how I view it. It it's this creative pursuit where there isn't there isn't anybody telling me I can't do this. In I mean, there's certain people on the internet have tried, but you know, I don't. I don't understand why people have put such narrow confines about what is photography or what is sort of a modern photography. To me, if since I I am already in, since I've given my given myself permission to be different than everyone else. I've basically allowed myself to explore and do things completely different than other people. You know, the fact that I built a pinhole camera out of a five foot by five foot tent. Right. <laughs> that is, that is all that is, is just this other side point to the work I already do. Right. Right. You know, which I would love so, to, I, I want to unpack that. Can we, let's, let's do another, another episode just about that. Because I think oh, that's sure. a that's a terrific story in and of itself, um, especially after I can see the thing working. Because I, I I think I would have a lot of questions about it, and I'd love to to be able to speak to it more intelligently, you know, or more completely. Sure, sure, no, definitely. Yeah. But once once I unhinged myself from from needing a brand name on a camera and sort of playing in a a world where i use a plastic camera to create what i do then it becomes something where it's like oh, okay so photography is light in a box what happens if i build a bigger box mm -hmm. like it becomes an easier jump off point right then then oh did you see the next camera that just got released Right. It has an extra five pixels. I <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's it's like the uh, there's a there's a great quote in Fight Club. Uh, it's only when you've lost everything that you're free to accomplish anything. Yeah, th and that's that's kind of what you've done. You haven't lost it, but you've 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 set aside the the marketing dogma and just gone. Okay, wait a minute. What are we really talking about? We're talking about a box light chemicals you know you're getting back to the bare essentials and then asking the question why can't this be photography this is what photography used to be why can't this still be photography yeah and i've already decided based off of my decisions i've already decided that money the creative pursuits of creativity and sort of within photography is worth more than money mm-hmm you know, if I wanted the 401k and the cash, 
I would have stayed working in finance because it pays way better than photography currently <laughs> does for me. Right, right. So I've already, I've already sort of put down the markers of what, what I value in life. So if, if I'm already choosing to be, if you want to say, live unconventionally or outside the norm, and then I go into this creative pursuit and then make an unconventional choice within that creative pursuit, I've sort of, you know, I don't know, declared that I made a statement of purpose that I'm not going to limit myself in my artistic pursuits by what's in style, what's in convention. That I'm just going to push this art form as far as it interests me. As long as it sort of keeps on scratching that creative itch and still gets me excited every day that's how far i'm gonna keep on pushing i'm just gonna follow it till you know till i decide to do something different and that includes uh, you know maybe i want to explore portraiture you know i i i'm gonna do that like i'm not gonna put limits on myself that i am x and therefore i shoot with x it's just a matter of on this day, in this period of my photographic career, this is how I'm expressing myself. And how do I make the best image right now with the tools that I chose to use? I'd like to thank John for taking some time and having such a great conversation. Uh, if you would like to see John's work or buy a print or two, Head over to his website at johnwilkening.com. That's J-O-N, no H, J-O-N-W-I-L-K-E-N-I-N-G.com. Uh, I own a few of John's prints, and I can tell you they look even better in person. Uh, you can also follow John on Twitter and Instagram, at John Wilkening. Uh, stay up to date on the show by subscribing to Process Driven on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by visiting jeffreysadoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com and clicking the support the show button in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on Twitter or Facebook or any of your social media streams or by leaving a review or a rating on iTunes. Uh, if you'd like to suggest a conversation, send me a message on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at Jeffrey Sidoris. And as always, thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next one.